Well, good morning, everyone. We have been talking about um, the scepter, and we've been talking about, at the beginning, of the importance, and I need to go get my scepter. I forgot to get it. See what happens? I might grab one of these bell things, and then Mike Averick will come after me. Okay. Boy, I'm really getting old. We got to build shorter stairs there. Okay. All right. Well, we've been talking about the scepter. And we've been talking about four stages of the scepter. We've been talking about holding on to the scepter. Then we, talk, we were talking about, the, the next week we are talking about loosening the scepter. Then last week we were talking about letting it go. But when we let it go, there's a chance we can still try to grab it before it hits the ground. And I liken that sometimes in our lives when we're struggling with something in our lives and we're not sure. It may be fear, it may be change, it may be the seasons of life, maybe that we feel like we're 25 years old, but 25 is not what we are anymore, we're like 55. And we feel like sometimes it's like, wow, you know, change is really hard. And so we go through these stages and parts, and sometimes it's a daily struggle, and we're just trying to let it go, but we're holding on. We're trying to let it go, but we're holding on. And God keeps encouraging us to say, just drop it. Just lay it down. Lay it down because I never intended for you to hold the scepter. There shouldn't be a scepter in your heart, but often we do. And the challenge is, can we just drop it? And so today, we want to find out, as we all know, who's the true king? What does the scriptures talk about? Why do we come here? When we say that we worship the king, what does that mean? Where does that, if worship means total focus on him and his presence and who he is, then where should the focus not be? It should not be on me holding the scepter or even hoisting it. And so that's a challenge for each of us because when we're thinking about this whole concept or this whole idea and truth about the scepter, we have to ask the question, which king do we want to unleash in our life? Which king do you want to unleash in your life? What does that really truly mean? And if we understand that, we're either holding on to the scepter, which means this represents authority, and if I hold on to the scepter and even hoist, that means I call my own shots and God calls nothing for me. I make my decisions and God approves them. Or is it that I just simply say, God, whatever my ideas, even if they seem great, I'm going to drop it because it's about you. It's not about me. And so that's a hard place to be as a Christian. Because when we look at ourselves and we compare ourselves to everyone else around us and around the world, it's easy to just do this, hold on to it, and say, hey, I got this. I can control this. I can hold my scepter. And so that's where we have to understand when we find out who the true king is, then we're going to say, hey, wait a minute. Um, if I'm worshiping the king, it's got to drop. No matter what situation is in my life, no matter what fear, what difficulty, what change, whatever comes my way, when I feel like I'm out of control, I have to drop that scepter. But that, some of us might say that's irresponsible. No, it's trusting God. Because if he is who he is and we believe it, then we're going to drop it. And so that's the challenge for us as Christians every day. And so as we, we want to know which king are we unleashing, 
God's saying, I can't see you unleashing my son until you drop the scepter. Because when you drop the scepter, then I can allow the king of kings and the Lord of lords to just flow through you. And that's in everything and everywhere in our lives, in our marriages, with our children, in our jobs. It doesn't matter when we see our neighbors, our priorities, our perspective, everything has to be surrendered to the king. And so it's Christmas, we have to understand, why did Jesus, oh, this cute little baby? It's not about the baby, it's about Jesus ultimately who's going to come and rise and be the king of kings who he is today, the Lord of lords. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and the beauty of it is that he has set up his kingdom and will be here on earth as a millennial kingdom if you have that view eschatologically. And so we have to see that if he's king, he's got to be king because he already is in our lives. And so we want to understand that what does it mean? So when we drop the scepter, as you look at your outlines there, when we drop the scepter before the king, Jesus, we do it because why? We've got to do it. We've got to drop the scepter before it because Jesus, of who he is, of what he's done, of how he works in our lives. Look with me to chapter two, or excuse me, chapter one of Luke's, Luke. We're going to look at that because we understand the traditional story of chapter 2, Luke, and Christmas. But just look, let's look at Luke. And as we've been talking about in the last few weeks, we were talking about how Matthew represents King Jesus and his audience are, are primarily the Israelites, the Jews. Luke, I mean, Mark talks about Jesus being the servant and each gospel has a representation of Jesus. And then we have Luke as the perfect man. And then we see John as Jesus being deity. So as we look at Luke, we're going to be looking at chapter 1. And as we look at chapter 1, we have to understand that there is a storyline here. There's another narrative as we understand Jesus and him and Mary. And as we understand Elizabeth and even John the Baptist. Um, and we, we have to understand this is the beginning of the story prior to him being born. This is what's being foretold of the, of the baby that is to come. We're familiar with this story. We hear it practically every Christmas, and we understand it. But what does it really mean when it comes to understanding that he truly is the king? It sounds good. It works in every Christmas show and every Christmas pageant and every song that we sing during Christmas. We, we understand that Jesus is the king. But what does it mean personally in our lives? Because if we understand he's the king here, but we can't get him king here, then all it is is just intellectual, and it's not transferring to here. And so what does that mean? And that's why we're talking about that scepter of understanding how can it apply to our lives. As you look at chapter 1, verse 26, we want to understand something prior to before going to this outline. As we look at verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, which we understand later that Jesus was born in that area, to a virgin, verse 27, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now let's just look at this for a second. Angel sent by God. You might say, hey, that's just a simple little statement I've heard since I was a young person and every school, public school even, would share it years ago, private schools and all churches. But the word sent in the Greek simply means that to dispatch someone for the achievement of some objective goal. So here's God sending forth an angel 
for a purpose. Sounds great. It's the beginning of the story. It's the beginning of Jesus. But the angel is sent by God, indicating there's a plan. And what is this plan? This plan, we understand later, is to bring peace to all men. But is it meaning to bring peace to all men so that peace would be the absence of difficulty and trial and tribulation? Does it mean when we were growing up in those commercials, peace on, you know, and every commercial back when we were younger would come up with that verse in Luke 2, 14, coming out about peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Now today we don't see it as often, but when you think about it, that's where it's at. That's the so-called message. But what are we looking at? God has a plan sending his son. We understand, too, that God sending his plan for his son was mentioned 40 times in the book of John. But here is the narrative and the story of Luke, understanding that God has a plan, and he sends one of his messengers, Angelos, where it's his angel messenger. And we understand, too, that when we're looking at this verse is that Gabriel was sent with that purpose to a virgin betrothed, or we would understand the word engaged. And we look in Matthew 1.18, it was promised he was to be married, for Joseph and Mary were to come together. But to betroth and to be married means that you would have a time, a year, where you would be able to come together in engagement. And I don't know about you, but that's a long time. I had to be engaged for 14 months, and I was burning with desire. I was burning with desire to marry my wife, and we had to wait just a little bit longer because all the family members in the wedding party had to make sure that they had their dresses together and that everybody would fit in them because my sister-in-laws were both having children, so we had to wait an additional six months. And I said to them, you don't know what you're doing to me right now. I got to wait 14 months for this? And boy, when I tell you I was praying, boy, I was praying because I was just so in, and continue to be in love with my wife, but I was just crazy in love and wanted to get married. But it was a time where God said, simmer down, son. It, just take your time. I'll allow you to be with her a little bit longer than 14 months. But the idea was that when they were engaged, they were ready to be married. And then we look and we see that there is Joseph, his name, in the house of David. And we recognize that in the house of David in Old Testament prophecy, that we understand there's a connection there with David and the Jews. And the virgin's name was Mary. So everything was good. Everything was great. There was a proclamation. There was a proclamation. But we have to also understand, too, that there's some other things before we get to this first point. Look with me, if you have your Bible, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. This is something that's important to understand. You might say, wait a minute, are you giving us a lesson on uh, a couple days before Christmas? Yes, I am. So hang in there. I'm giving you a lesson here. That's the teacher in me. But here, verse 12, as we look at the genealogy and we look at the Jesus Christ and the 42 generations that are located here, we see in verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor. And you might say these are just a bunch of names, but this is unique because in Jeremiah... In Jeremiah specifically, and 22 verse 24, Jeconiah's line, lineage, was accursed by God, removed from the line of David. Removed. Now, we would say, wait a minute, but Bruno, you see, his name is there. But as we look at 1 Chronicles 3, 17, and we're going to look at just quickly Haggai 2, 23, we understand 
that some would even, scholars would believe that Shatil was adopting his nephew. And so Zerubbabel was intertwined into the lineage by God. And now, as he's intertwined into the lineage, it's not just the line of Joseph, but in Luke chapter 3, we see the line of Mary. And really, it derives from the line of Mary. If you look with me to Haggai 2.23, it says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, a king. Authority, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And he's talking about Jesus to come, the Messiah, the line of David, the lineage, and David being the king, which we see throughout the generations of the genealogy. It's so important to understand because within this genealogy, we see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But we also understand, too, that Mary was a part of that because in verse 16, if you look at this, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. See, Joseph wasn't the true line because Jeconiah was accursed. So it wasn't the physical line because he wasn't biologically the father because the Holy Spirit is overshadowing him. But Jesus is coming from Mary. And even Matthew recognizes this when he says it in verse 16, the husband of Mary of whom? The word whom in the Greek is a preposition and it's an effeminine. Right there, it's a feminine. It's not a masculine. It's a feminine preposition. And Jesus was born of Mary, which we'll see in the genealogy of Luke chapter 3. It doesn't come through Solomon. It comes through Nathan. This is important to understand because God and the, the plan that the angel sent him, everything God does is perfect because he's perfect. And everything that's set up in plan, he doesn't miss a beat. Someone would question that. Someone would say, even a, a secular scholar would say, but wait a minute, that line was accursed. But Jesus is the king. Well, how can he be the king if that line is accursed? Because he ultimately comes from Mary through Nathan, not through Solomon. And you'll see that in Luke 3.27 with Zerubbabel also in that lineage. And you'll see in 3.31. Now, I just share that with you to say that if anybody questions the genealogy of Jesus, that he's the king, he's the king. You can take that face value, but we see in the scriptures it's so clear with the intricacies and the details of saying that Jesus truly is the king. I get, the, I get excited about that. It moves me to know that my Jesus is the king, that I don't have to be king, that I don't have to hold the scepter, that I don't have to hoist it up and get my way. I can just simply drop in and say, Jesus, you know better. You know better. I've learned, I have so many years now, I can say at 51, I have messed things up over and over and over again, but I thank God that Jesus cleans up the mess because he loves me, because he has a plan. It's not about me, it's about him. Because I'm in Christ, and so are you. So when we're bought with a price, it's not about us. It's about him. And our lives are not about what we want. It's about what he wants. And it's hard. It's not easy. It's challenging. But that's why he came. He came to buy us from the slave market of sin, agoriza, to bring us into his bosom 
in a relationship with him. See, God, who loves us with a great passion and relationship, he's saying to us, I love you. I want to bring you in my bosom. I love you so much that I'm going to take you out of the slave market of sin. I don't deserve it. But his mercy and his grace has been bestowed upon me. That's why when we look at this passage, we have to understand because that's what God is doing here with Mary. We understand that God is trying to just move in our hearts to say, what is it about Mary? She was a woman of God, great faith, a woman that would make us look really bad when it comes to faith. Um, But we have to understand that when we drop the scepter before the king because Jesus is because he bestows grace. He bestows grace. Look with me to verse 28 of chapter 1. We're back to this narrative. Verse 28. And it says this. It says, And he came to her, the angel, and said, Greetings, Mary, greetings, O favored one. Now some would, some religions would say, even the Catholic religion would say, that she is a bestower of grace. That she's the one that bestows grace, dispenses grace upon people. There's a problem here because in the Greek it doesn't say that. In the Greek it actually says the opposite. It's in a perfect passive form, which means God is the one who's bestowing the grace on her. It's not as though she's doing it. It's not as though God gives her the grace and then she bestows the grace. God bestows grace on her. She is not the agent or the distributor of grace. And even Ephesians 1, 6 says, we are the ones who are recipients of grace. I mean, it says we, we, we're recipients of the benefit. We're bestowed upon us on favor. Even it says in the Greek in, one, in Ephesians 1, 6, bestowing favor on us, favorably hired, blessed. That's what the word grace means. It means it's God is doing the work, not us. Some scholars are attempting to look at the Hebrew word for high favored and see it tied to Hannah with Samuel's miraculous birth in the Old Testament, but there has been no proof of that. Therefore, the only reference to Mary being any thought of bestowing grace on people would be the translation of the Latin Vulgate, full of grace. But if she's full of grace, it's because God bestowed grace upon her. And guess what? You and I, we are full of grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have every option to be full of grace. You would say, you know what? This person's not very gracious, but they have the opportunity to be gracious. And gracious doesn't mean when someone is nice to you, you return the favor. Grace is when someone doesn't deserve it and you respond graciously. In fact, that's what grace is. Jesus, who came to die, it's very clear in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love by this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the grace that we receive is not because we deserve it, but it's because it's really the opposite, unmerited favor. Therefore, when you and I are gracious towards those who are not gracious to us, that's a sign that God is giving us grace and that we're full of grace because we choose to decide the Holy Spirit to live in us. But it's not easy because it's a battle. It's an inner battle. And our basis is not what we feel. But yet, we should never, ever dismiss Mary. She was a woman of great faith. Because Jesus, who came in John 1, 14 through 18, we understand he came with full of truth and grace. And as when even the angel says, the Lord is with you in verse 28, that's covenant language. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you when God said that to Joseph in Genesis 39, 3, 21 and 23. In Judges, when Gideon was in trouble 
And he didn't know what to do. And he kept going back to the angel. It says, the, it says quite clear in Judges 6.12, the Lord is with you. That's covenant language. Gideon received that. In 2 Samuel 7.3, just before the proclamation of David, the line of David in the Davidic covenant, it says, the Lord is with you, David. So we have to understand this. And in verse 29 of chapter uh, 1 of Luke, it says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She was perplexed, confused, didn't understand. Divine supernatural being sent by God? Mary was full of fear and confusion. She didn't understand. It wasn't that she had lack of faith. She just didn't understand. Sometimes when situations come, we don't understand how do we react. Are you and I confused? Are we perplexed? Are we fearful in the presence of God? When things come our way and we don't fully understand where we're going, should we react or overreact? Or should we bring it to the Lord and say, God, help me to understand this. What is going on here? I can't seem to wrap my hands around it. You know, I know that empty nesters, older parents struggle with that with their younger children or adult children. Um, they see their children are caring for their grandchildren, and sometimes they don't like it, and they want to step in, and they want to say something, and they got to just sit there and say, hold your tongue, hold your tongue. And you have the conversations all the time. I don't like when they do this and how they're bringing up the children. You wake up in the morning, you have your nice cup of coffee, and it, looks, it sounds great. You have a nice breakfast, and you start talking about the kids and the grandkids. And you're wondering why they're doing what they're doing. And then some of you guys, like me, if you're saying, okay, honey, I really don't want to talk about that right now. i got to go on with my life. But yet moms struggle because they were ruling the, news, the, the nest. And they were running, and now all of a sudden now their children are running their own nests. And then you have some of the children that just won't get out of the nest. They keep coming back to the nest. And then you have those children that are in the nest and saying they don't want to leave. And you're like, please leave the nest. Please leave the nest. Mom and dad, we want to go and do something together. Whatever the case may be. It doesn't matter because God is teaching us to trust him. But sometimes we're confused. Should we revere his presence and humble ourselves? Or should we hoist the scepter and say, God, I still got that scepter. I want you to do what I want you. We may not emphatically say that, but in our hearts we're battling that. We don't like the way things are happening in our lives. God is trying to do that. And so for us, we have to understand God bestows grace he did with Jesus. Secondly, we understand this too, and we, and, we, and we grasp it as well. He is the Savior. He is the Savior. So we drop the scepter before King Jesus because he is the Savior. Look with me to Luke verse 1, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 31. It says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We understand that clearly that that's the gospel. We understand that Jesus means salvation. We understand that he came, even in Matthew 121, it says that he came to save his people from their sin. The Jews were living under a yoke of the law and their understanding, according to the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, was to keep the law in order to have right standing with God. However, the Lord came as the incarnate God God in flesh. God in flesh, 100% man, 100% God. In the church councils of the old church of, of the 400 BC or ADs and all the different councils, 
in church history. They were battling through understanding who is Jesus? Is he truly God? Is he truly man? And understanding the hypostatic union of Christ and understanding that he is truly God. Even in Romans 8, 1 through 4 highlights that, that he came in a flesh in order to die. He came as a baby because he had to go through the stages to become a man, to die on the cross for sin. He had to become the substitutionary atonement for all mankind. The impossible task was a virgin birth. And the other impossible task was man being saved from their sin. Yet God attacked that plan. He had a plan and he attacked it through his son. See, Jesus means Yahweh saves. The Lord is our salvation. So we understand that he is the Savior. Third, we understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the incarnate. As we look at verse 32, we understand he will be great and we will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, son of the most high God, but yet Satan wanted to be like the most high God. As we look at Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and we're not going to look at it, but just mention the five I wills, a depiction of Satan through the king of Babylon, identify him for he said in his heart, if I will ascend into heaven, I will be like the most high God. I will be like the most high God because I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. His throne will exceed over his creation. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, seated above all the Canaanite gods. So this man, this king, this earthly king that that was depicting Satan was saying he was going to be above the gods. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. That was Satan. He wanted to be like the most high God. How did that turn out? Not too well. He has a future that's coming. But see, we understand that the Most High God means El Elyon. He seats above, and Jesus himself is the Most High God. But we also see that with Zacharias, and, and he was there, and he was receiving also prophecy, and he spoke up, he doubted, and the angel shut his mouth when he was in the, in the, in the holy place. And he's walking in, and he hears this message, but he hears the prophet of the Most High. See, the difference with, we understand John the Baptist, that he was the prophet of the Most High, but Jesus is the Most High God. And that's what we want to gather in our hearts, because why? Satan was hoisting his scepter and saying, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He has a scepter still. He's still deceived to think he runs the world. He's the God of this age. God allows that. He has his hands on the people in this world to refuse who Jesus is because he is the most high God. It doesn't matter what people say. He is king. He is the most high God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. No one can take that away from him. No title, nothing. He is the Messiah. But we are the children of God through Christ. Not everyone is a child of God. Everyone's a creation of God, but not everyone is a child of God. And you and I are children of God. In John 1, 12, we understand we received Christ. And we carry and bear the name of Jesus. And so with you and I, we don't have to carry a scepter because Jesus does already. And if Jesus lives in up, he's carrying the scepter in our hearts. And when in our homes, he's the authority, not us. That's what's important for us. So we want to gather and understand that's important. Lastly, 
what we have to gather to an understanding is that if he is, even in the Old Testament, it's a prophecy. In Psalm 89, 26, 9, it says, He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, which is preeminent. Not created, but preeminent. The highest of the king of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, his throne all the days of his life in heaven, all the days of the heavens. Also, we see in Isaiah 9, 6, you know this, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. No, no, it's not a, a miss. Word there, it's just that it's not that he is the father. We're not having a Trinitarian issue there. He is over, over it's, it's an understanding that he is the king, fathering, but not being the father, because we have a father in heaven, and the prince of peace. Now, what does it mean to be the prince of peace? Does it mean that he gives us what we want? He keeps things even keeled where we don't have any problems? No, the prince of peace refers to that he came to bring peace between God and man because of the impossibleness of man being able to enter into heaven by their own righteousness. There's no possibility of that. And impossible that a virgin could give birth without having sexual relations in a human way. That's what the Prince of Peace came. So we understand that. So he is, lastly, the internal king. Luke 1.33 says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. This is Davidic kingdom. This is 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. This is part of that. He is the eternal king. He is the, he is the one of the prophets what they spoke. He is the one that they mentioned, even in Hebrews 1.8. But the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is, Jesus can hoist this scepter because he is the eternal king. He is the one who reigns in our lives. He's the one whom we surrender to. And we have to understand that. And even in Revelation, it says this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud songs in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. We understand Yahweh, Kyrios, Messiah, anointed one. He shall reign forever and ever. We may understand that because nobody can take these titles away from him. He is the king. Wherever you go, whatever opinion is out there, whatever is out there in the secular world, they're trying to take away the title of Jesus himself. He is the king. He's the true king. Now, how the question now is saying, and the true king can handle the impossible through you and us, regardless of the challenge for control. The challenge for control. Let me share this in the narrative and understanding what this is. Now, when it says here in Luke 134, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Some would say, Hey, that was doubt. That could even be disbelief. How can Mary even question the angel? What happened? with Zacharias when he questioned the angel. I mean, he said, how can I sure could be of this? How can, I, how can I be sure of this? For I am an old man and my wife is old as well. So it wasn't as though he was questioning the how. 
he was questioning whether he could even happen. See, the difference between Zacharias and Mary, Mary didn't question it couldn't happen. Zacharias did. There was doubt and disbelief. That's why the angel shut his mouth. She did not doubt or disbelieve. Because even in the Greek, there's a phrase there. And even when you see it there in the verse, it's the word how in the Greek. It says how. How will this be? How can this happen? Meaning, I wonder how you're going to do it, Lord. Not that you can't do it, but how are you going to do it? I mean, wait a minute. I'm betrothed to Joseph. I haven't been with him yet. How in the world is this going to happen? I mean, okay, Lord, how? How about us? When the how comes up. You ever notice? I notice this in my life. When I start to struggle with faith, when I start to struggle with how or or things are out of control, it's because I don't know how it's going to happen. And I want to know how. You ever catch yourself saying, wait a minute, Lord, I can trust you right now, but just Come on, Lord, tell me how you're going to do this. So then I really know I can trust you. How are you going to work this out? This doesn't seem possible. I see chaos coming, Lord. I don't see how in the world this is called peace. If you're the prince of peace and you're supposed to work everything out, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this. See, sometimes I think, how should we respond when a situation is totally out of our control? Should we trust God? Should we bring disbelief and doubt? Should we attempt to know the how? I mean, it's challenging to trust God because we want to know the how. If we don't know the how, then we want to hold on to the scepter until he shows us the how. And he's going to, and how he's going to accomplish the task, meaning, Lord, I don't want to let go of this scepter or even loosening it if you're not going to show me how you're going to do this. I don't know about you, but I've been through that in periods of my life. Some of you who are more godly than men, I give you that. But I'm going to tell you something. There's periods and seasons in my life where I'm like, wait a minute, Lord. You're telling me to let this go. That don't make sense. Lord, I'm responsible. I'm a steward. I'm supposed to know. So, Lord, I'm holding on to this until you tell me for sure i got to drop it. Because, Lord, I'm not going to drop it. In fact, I'm afraid of even loosening it. I won't let it go until you tell me how in the world are you going to do this. What is that doing? I'm saying, God, i got to hold the scepter until you tell me how? Mary wasn't doing that. Mary was just asking the question. She wanted to know. It was out of control. Can you imagine an angel coming up to you, any of you ladies, and saying, hey, you're going to be with child. Okay, and I'm not married yet, so are you doing this now or what? You mean, I'm going to, how am I going to be pregnant now? How's this working? You understand the mindset there. It's crazy. It was out of control. Another thing is the true king can handle the impossible through you regardless of the fear. You look at this passage, you're saying the angel answered her. Now, it's fear enough to see an angel. I don't know about you. If I see an angel, I would freak out a little bit. But the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What? That makes no sense. What? The last time I checked, Lord, I'm supposed to have a, a man with me, if Mary's saying, and I'm supposed to have this natural process that you created, God, and how in the world am I supposed to... Wait, Holy Spirit, what? And here, therefore, a child will be born, and he will be called the Holy, the Son of God. The Messiah, what? And here, fear could have came over her. Overwhelming fear. 
And it says, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who has was called barren, meaning, look what I've already done the impossible. So are you going to believe me for the impossible? Mary's saying, I believe you. I just don't know how you're going to do it. What? Sometimes fear overwhelms us. The fear of the unknown. The fear of the unknown. When we get older, we don't know what's going to happen to us. The fear of the unknown. The fear of dying. The fear of wondering if I'm going to trip, fall, hurt myself, and it's going to take months before I get back on my feet, or the fear of anything coming your way that is out of our control. Cancer, disease, anything. The fear of the unknown can just totally hijack our lives, handcuffed us, or the fear to fail. How many of you struggle with the fear to fail? Be honest, I do. Thank you. At least some of you guys are like, I do, I do. No, I do. I struggle with the fear to fail. I don't want to fail. But I'm thankful for God. You know that young people today don't want to fail. They're struggling. Not being recognized. Afraid that now in our older years, we're not going to be the life of the party anymore. We're struggling with being recognized. We're in our younger years, and now as we get older, although we don't have the energy to be the life of the party, it's still a struggle because we want to be recognized. And all of this, we have to understand, this is part of it. But Jesus came, and he came in an impossible situation. He proclaimed himself to shepherds. He placed himself, God allowed him to be born in a stinky old manger to come to save us. That's the message of Christmas. That's the beauty of Christmas. But it's also so challenging. Lastly, as we look at this, the true king can handle the impossible through us regardless of the change. Look at verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Change is the most difficult thing to go through in life. As we get older, we don't want to change. And as we get older, we can't stand it because we've been through it so many years of our lives. We're tired of fighting it. So change becomes that difficulty in our lives. The trials, the difficulties, the impossibilities. And as we get older, we want to handle more, but we can't handle more. Our brain capacity goes down. We make mistakes. We do silly things. We call it senior moments, but even as we're younger, we have senior moments. It doesn't matter. But in all that, we, we have to understand change is difficulty. It's difficult. And that's, there's difficulty in our lives. Mary was confronted with the impossibility. And what was her response? It was incredible. It was incredible because she trusted God. She believed God. She knew that God was going to do something, even if it was out of her control, even if fear overwhelmed her, even if it was a change that she couldn't control or understand, she was willing to respond to God. And as we think about it, it was a submissive response. You know, that's why when we end this series we ask that question, are we going to hold that scepter in our hearts? Are we going to loosen it up, let it go, or are we going to drop it? That's the question. And that's a daily grind. But God is saying to us, look at Mary, the impossible, a fear of change, and out of control, and she was still willing to submit. See, we're called, you and I, as his people, to be a servant in submission to his will. 
This was the plan God sent the angel. This was the plan to save mankind. This was the plan. Now look, she's a woman of great faith. She was not a bestower of grace, but a woman of great faith. I honor Mary. I honor this woman because she is a great woman of faith. Would I lift her up to be a mediator? No. Would I lift her up to be a God? No. But I would honor this woman. When I have family who are Catholic, I say, I honor Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because this is how she responded. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I am the doulos of Yahweh, of Curios. Let it be to me according to your word. And Jesus, when he spoke, and I said it last week, this is special revelation. This is his word spoken to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the angel Angelos, the messenger, departed from her. Here was this woman who was willing to surrender all. She was willing to say, I'm going to drop the scepter because he is my child, will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. She didn't care about her reputation. She didn't care about what people would say. Joseph wanted to get rid of her, according to Deuteronomy chapter 22. But the angel had to step in again. Oh, no, 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 Joseph. This child is from God. He is, going, he is God, God in flesh. That's who we are honor. That's who we serve. That's who is the King of kings and the Lord, Jesus Christ. I want him to be unleashed in my life. That means I have to drop the scepter. No matter how much I think I'm right, no matter how much I know, no matter how much I've studied, no matter how much I've been doing what I'm doing, I have to drop the scepter in every situation. It's not about me. It's about what God wants. I have seen that, I have lived that, I will continue to live. Doesn't mean I don't struggle, doesn't mean that I don't want to do what I want to do, because I want to do what I want to do in my flesh. But I won't do that according to what God's called me to do. And each one of us, we must do that. As Grace Church, we must move forward. Our, our job is to be an agent to reach the lost, to see people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the message of the gospel. We want to reach those who are far away. Let me tell you something. If there wasn't a church who did that with me, I wouldn't be standing in front of you right now. If people didn't have that passion to want to reach those who are far away, believe me. Believe me when I tell you I wouldn't be that person here in this room because I know what I used to be like. I don't even know that person anymore, but someone was willing to share the gospel with me and to say why. It was a woman for two and a half years not letting go when I said I don't have time for it. And I was clubbing all night long, getting home at 6 and 7 in the morning, going to work as a car salesman with the same suit from the day before. Living a life that you don't want to know about that I used to live. But it was God who used Kathy Polanski to work on me for two and a half years because she loved the Lord and she wanted to see the gospel. She wanted to see Christ in me. That's why we exist, to see people come to faith in Jesus. That's what we got to do we got to touch people's lives because the fact is this isn't our home. God's calling us to himself, but I want to take every opportunity I can to share Christ with whomever I can. I don't want to get stuck. I want to share Christ wherever I go. Let's have that passion. Let's live Christmas every day of our lives for the gospel. That's our passion. That's what we want to see happen. 
I want to encourage you as you bow your heads and you close your eyes. I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you this morning. As the team is coming up, I want to challenge you this morning. Where's that scepter in your heart? What's stopping you? Are you making Jesus to be, are you controlling Jesus with your scepter like you think you can? Are you putting him in a small box? Are you telling him, you stay right here, little baby. I like you where you are, right in that manger. Don't you move from there. Or are you saying, no, Jesus, I'll drop the scepter. I want to get you out of that box. I want you to be unleashed in my life. I want to encourage you as you listen to this song. Listen to the words. He is the king. Let him be king in your life. I try to fit you in the walls inside my mind. I try to keep you safely in between the lines. I try to put you in the box that I've designed. I try to pull you down so we are eye to eye. When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? I try to take life back right out of the hands. King of the world, how could I make you so small when you're the one who holds it all? When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? Just a whisper of your voice can tame the seas. So who am I try to take the lead? Still I run ahead and think I'm strong enough. You've always been the king of the world I try to take life back right out of the hands of the king of the world How could I make you so small when you're the one who holds it all? When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? set it all in motion every single moment you brought it all to be and you're holding on to me when did I forget that you've always been the king of the world I try to take life back right out of the hands of the king of the world how could i make you so small when you're the one who holds it all 
When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? You will always be the king of the world. Before we leave today, um, I want to. I just want again, just want to encourage you. Christmas Eve is coming. You have an opportunity to invite a friend, a neighbor, someone close. This is your opportunity to invite someone. This is your opportunity that they may even come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm going to be sharing the gospel on Christmas Eve. I hope you might consider bringing a family member. At a school this past, I think this past week or a couple days ago, Mr. Johnson, the dean of students, his granddaughter came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something. Yes, you should be clapping. I don't know why you guys are not clapping. Clap. I mean, that's an awesome thing. Why? Because she was just brought into school about a month ago or two months ago. And the influence of our school, you are part of that. When you give, when you give to the church, when you give and you're a part of that happening, that would happen. I'm going to be encouraged because you're, you're playing a part of the gospel. She came to faith in Christ. We should be excited about that. And I pray that you guys will see that this is an opportunity for each of you to share Christ by bringing them to church. That's one, one way. Another way is just tell them, talk to them, spend some time with them. So I want to encourage you. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're grateful for today. We need you, Lord. We need you today. I pray that your people would be excited about the gospel. I pray that each one of us, all of us, I'm I'm saying your people, meaning me, would be excited about the gospel. I pray that we would desire to want to share Christ with someone else and pray that your spirit would move in a mighty way. Lord, each person who is a part of this church played a part in Dwayne Johnson's granddaughter and her life. She came to faith in Christ and many others who in our school and all around our church are coming to faith in Christ. God, may you lift us up and be excited about the gospel. That's the Christmas message. God, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.